0: Chapter One, Part One of Commentary in the Gospel of John, Book Nine, by Cyril of Alexandria, translated by Reverend Thomas Randall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One That by reason of the identity of their nature, the Son is in the Father, and the Father again is in the Son. Eleven Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He now admits plainly, or rather enjoins on the disciples henceforth, that it is fitting that we should be no otherwise minded than as the word of truth himself may desire. For he is consubstantial with his Father, nothing whatever intervening, or in any way separating one from the other into a diversity of nature. He is one with him, so that the Son's nature appears in the essence of the Father, and in the essence of the offspring, appears conspicuously that of God the Father, just as one might see happen in the case of human relations. For we are in no way different in our nature from our offspring, nor are we sundered from them in an alienation of nature, although we are distinguished by a difference of outward personality. In illustration of which... Let any man who has looked upon the Son begotten by himself consider the history of the blessed Abraham. But in the case of men the difference is often very considerable, each one tending definitely, in a way, towards the retirement and withdrawal of himself into a peculiar line of life and manners, without feeling personally bound up in the other, although their unity of essence may be certain and evident to all. But in the case of God, who is ever in perfect accordance with his nature, thou wilt believe it to be otherwise. The Father, indeed, is in individual personality Father and not Son. And again similarly, he who cometh forth from the Father is Son and not Father, and the Spirit is peculiarly Spirit. But since the Holy Trinity is united and joined together into a oneness of Godhead, there is among us one God alone, and it would be impossible to attribute to each one of the persons here indicated the habit of secession from the others, and neither will ever withdraw into absolute separation. But we believe that each person is in very substance exactly what we have here entitled him. We consider that the Son, being of the Father, that is, of His essence, proceeded forth from Him in a manner ineffable, and yet abides in Him. Likewise also concerning the Holy Spirit. He proceeds in very truth from God as He is by nature, and yet is in no wise severed from His essence, but rather proceeds forth from Him, still abiding ever in Him, and is supplied to the saints through Christ. For all things come through the Son by the Holy Spirit. Such is the true and upright teaching that the wisdom of the Holy Fathers has taught us. Thus we have been trained also by the Holy Scriptures themselves to speak and to think. And the Lord would cheer us onward to accept this unreviled faith when He says, Believe that I am in the Father, and the father in me or else believe for the very work's sake in these words he distinctly says that he could never have worked out and achieved those miracles which were characteristic of the divine nature alone if he had not been himself essentially of that nature and see on what sure grounds and also with what truth he makes this declaration He does not claim credence for his words alone, although he knew no deceit, so much as for his actions. And why this is so I will tell you. For there would be nothing to prevent any man, however mad and however foolish, from falsely using God-befitting words and speeches, and uttering such expressions in a most reckless manner. But who could ever display a God-befitting power of action, And to whom of created beings will the Father grant that glory which is especially his own? Do we not always say that the power of doing all things, and the possession of an all-supreme might, is the glory of God alone, attaching to no other being, at least to no one ever numbered among the creatures of God? Therefore it is that Christ, wishing to give a proof of his divinity resting on cogent and unquestionable arguments, urged them to believe the evidence of his actual works that he was in the Father, and that the Father again was in him. That is, that he bears in his own substance the nature of the Father, as being his very own offspring and most truly his fruit, and appearing in natural relation to him as son to father. But while the Church of Christ, in perfect confidence in the rightness of her teaching, holds in this form her doctrine concerning the only begotten, on the other hand the ungodly heretics have attempted to seduce to a different belief those who follow after and attend to their pernicious teachings. For the miserable creatures are furious in their outcries against Christ, and consider one another not to provoke unto godliness." but to the end that each one may appear more godless than another and may utter something yet more unseemly. For since they drink the wine of Sodom and gather the bitter clusters of Gomorrah, because they receive not from the Divine Spirit their knowledge concerning him, nor yet by revelation from the Father, but from the dragon himself, they can conceive in their minds nothing that is sound and right but the utter sayings which bring to absolute wretchedness the souls of those who hear them, hurling them down to Hades and the abyss below. They venture, moreover, to publish these opinions and books, thus stereotyping their own wickedness for all time. It ought to have been sufficient for us to have said just so much on the present passage as would have been likely to benefit those who may chance to read it by way of establishing in absolute accuracy the true conception concerning the sun, without making any allusion whatever to the heretical writings. But as it is in no way improbable that some persons of feeble intelligence may, on chancing to meet with their miserable sayings, be carried away by them, I considered it necessary to put an end to the harm that might result from their foolish talk by exposing the utter weakness of the slanders they wished to raise in their vehement attack on the sun, or rather, for that is the truer way of putting the case, on the whole divine nature. I happened then to meet with a pamphlet of our opponents, and on investigating what they had to say on the text now before us, I found, in the course of reading it, these words used after certain others. The Son, therefore, being essentially encompassed by the Father, has within himself the Father, and it is the Father who utters the words and accomplishes the miracles. This is the interpretation of his words, The things that I speak unto you I speak not from myself, but the Father abiding in me he doeth the works. Such are the exact expressions of the author's quibbling jugglery. Now, since it is my duty to mention this view, which is opposed to the language of Scripture, and which may very well perplex an inexperienced mind, I make this assertion. As to their phrase that the Son is essentially encompassed by the Father, I do not in the least understand what in the world it means, or what it signifies. I speak the truth, as I feel it my duty to do, so great is the obscurity of the expression. The real sense of the words seems ashamed of itself, and inclined to veil itself in overmuch dimness, not daring to explain itself openly and clearly. For even as he that doeth ill hateth the light, and cometh not to the light, lest he should be improved, according to the Saviour's word, Even so every argument with an ill tendency is wont to move through dark ideas, and will not go towards the light of plain speaking, lest the meanness of its inherent unsoundness should be reproved. What then may we suppose to be the meaning of the son's being essentially encompassed by the father? FOR I WILL SPARE NO PAINS TO DISCOVER REASONINGS WHICH MAY SIFT IN EVERY POSSIBLE WAY THE REAL IMPORT OF THAT WHICH IS HERE SO DIMLY EXPRESSED, AND WHICH PERHAPS SHRINKS FROM BEING UNDERSTOOD, LEST IT MAY THEN REVEAL THE FOLLY OF ITS AUTHOR. IF THEN THE MEANING BE THIS, THAT THE SON, APPEARING IN THE ESSENCE OF THE FATHER AS CONSUBSTANTIAL WITH HIM, displays also in his own person the father brilliantly shining in the nature of his offspring we also will assent to the truth of the statement still the use of the word encompass would perchance do more than a slight injustice in its application to the son but if this be not the meaning and surely it cannot be For never would it be admitted that the Son is begotten of the essence of the Father by one who has vomited such blasphemy against him, insisting that like some finite body the nature of the Son is enclosed within that of the Father. Certainly such an one will be convicted of evident blasphemy and will be shown to be full of the most excessive madness. For while admitting in words that the Son is God, they endeavor most illogically to invest him with properties peculiar to created bodies. For the being parted off by a boundary line and separated by a definitely conceived measure, the starting from a fixed origin and ceasing at a fixed limit, all this surely implies existence conditioned by place and size and fashion and form and these are surely attributes of created bodies. Shall we not then in this way be thinking of him who is above us as though he were on a level with us as one of ourselves? Would he not then be a brother to the rest of creation, having henceforth nothing in himself by way of superiority to it, inasmuch as this theory has come to speak of his existence as merely finite? And, being so, at least according to the foolish supposition of our opponents, why did he vainly reproach us in the words, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. And again, Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. For in saying that he himself is from above, he does not simply mean that he came from heaven else how would he excel the holy angels, since we shall find that they also are from above, if we interpret the meaning in a merely local sense. But he signifies that he is the offspring of that essence which is from above, and which is more excellent than all else in the universe. How then after this can he be speaking the truth, if he possesses the peculiar attributes of created bodies in common with all creation, and is encompassed by the Father, even as those things that are brought into existence out of nothing. For, of course, we are ready to agree that no created thing can be situated outside of the Father. And the inspired psalmist also, speaking surely by the Spirit deep truths and hidden mysteries, says that the Son is all-pervading, attesting thereby his incorporeal and illimitable nature and that as God he is confined to no one locality. For his words are, Whither can I go from thy spirit, and whither can I fly from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I descend into Hades, thou art present. If I take my wings in the morning, and go unto the uttermost parts of the sea, even there also thy hand shall guide me, and thy right hand shall hold me. But these heretics, in utter recklessness ranging their own opinions in antagonism to the words of the Spirit, subject the only begotten to limitations and boundaries, although they ought to have understood the matter from the cogent and instructive reasoning of the Scripture. For if he has filled the heavens and the uttermost parts of the earth, and therefore also the regions of Hades, is it not excessively unreasonable to apply to him the word encompassed, without reflecting that if his presence, that is, if the Spirit, for the psalmist calls the Spirit the presence of the Son, fills all things, it is inconceivable that Christ himself should be encompassed within any boundary, even though it be in the substance of God the Father. Nay, it will be no less outrageous to limit within a confined space that which is incorporeal than to include in a measure that which exists in no finite form. For to say that he is essentially encompassed by God the Father is surely not else than to imply that his essence is finite exactly like any individual things of the works that were made by him and these we shall safely and truly allow to be capable of being encompassed for they are created bodies even though perchance not all such as ours but besides there is this also to be thought of if we maintain that it is necessary that whatever is enfolded by anything lies entirely within the limits of that which is said to encompass it, will it not certainly follow that we should think of that which is encompassed as something less than that which encompasses it, and should speak of it as limited thereby, and as it were enclosed within the compass of that which is greater than itself? What sayest thou now, my friend? Here we have Christ presenting himself before us as a likeness of God the Father, and plainly saying, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and again straightway adding, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Let us assume, then, that he means, as you would understand him to say, that, although I am the very image and likeness of my Father, yet I am essentially encompassed by him. Surely it is acknowledged by all men that he would have us hold just such ideas concerning the Father as we would conceive concerning himself also. Therefore it would follow that the Father also is subject to limitation, for he is in the Son. And let the heretic search, if he will, and find out who or what is greater than the Father. I should deem it impious to express or even to conceive such an idea. The Son can never be a likeness of the Father in one way and not so in another. For if he has in himself anything at all that would alter or interfere with his resemblance in all points, he would be, as a consequence of that, a partial and not a perfect likeness. But where could you show us the Holy Scripture teaching such a doctrine as this? For most certainly we are not going to be led astray by your words so as to reject the plain truth of the sacred statements. And I wonder how it is they did not shrink in dismay from adding to their former arguments the following. Just as Paul had Christ speaking in him and effecting the mighty deeds, exactly in the same way also the Son had the Father speaking in him and working the miracles, Wherefore he says, Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. After this, who will any longer allow the name of Christian to one who holds such views and thinks such thoughts concerning Christ? For behold how very evidently he maintains that Christ is no longer truly God recklessly he invests him with the limitations properly characteristic of creatures proclaiming him to be a sort of god bearer or one who participates in god rather than one begotten god of god to put it briefly his aim is throughout the utter severance of christ in every way and in every respect from the essence of god the father and to cut him off altogether from that intimate relationship in nature and essence which he has with God his own Father. Now what could be conceived to surpass such views as these in the immense amazement they are calculated to excite? How could one refrain from shedding in torrents uncontrollable tears of love over men so utterly abandoned to ungodliness, as though they were already dead and perished? one might say, and that very appropriately, Who will give to my head water, and to mine eyes a fountain of tears, and I will weep for this people day and night? For over those who have chosen to think such thoughts as these, one might fitly shed innumerable tears. But since it is by means of the doctrines of the truth that I conceive we ought to refute their slanders, for the sake of that which is profitable to simple folk, come now, and let us answer them by saying that we have been very jealous for the Lord. For assuredly, my friends, the inspired Paul or any other among the saints, while they had in themselves Christ tabernacled in their hearts by the Spirit, very easily did such things as seemed good unto God, and appeared as workers of miraculous deeds. It is an established fact, therefore, and one that thou wouldst thyself admit to be true, that in being really human in nature, and different in essence from the Holy Spirit of Christ that dwelt within them, they were fearers of God, and were glorious by reason of the grace bestowed on them by Christ. And thou wilt altogether agree with us in saying that they were at one time destitute of this gift, and were called thereunto when it seemed good to God, who directs all things well, that thus it should be. It was then not impossible that, by some untoward action, or deed not well done, the blessed Paul, or any other of those similarly favored, should after being joined unto God be capable of losing again the grace given to him, and being thrust back again to return to the humiliation whence he had arisen for that which is wholly adventitious and from without may easily be spurned away, and is capable of being taken back even as it was given. Now then, my good sir, for my question is coming back to thee. If it is true, according to thy ignorant notions and most impious imagination, that even as Christ was speaking and working wonders in Paul, so one must admit that the Father is in the Son. What manner of doubt can there be that he must be in no sense whatever in his nature God, but rather something different from the Father and dwelling in him, the Father being God in very truth? For thus it was that Christ was in Paul. So then, according to you, the only begotten is a sort of instrument or implement in the hand of the Father cunningly devised to set forth his glory in no wise differing from a flute or a lyre giving utterance to whatsoever the mouth of the player might breathe into it or the touch of his finger call forth in rhythmic melody and he will be acceptable to the father as an assistance in the performance of his wonders as one might conceive of a saw or an axe in the hands of a skilful carpenter And then what can be more paradoxical than this? For if he is by nature, as those heretics say, he must be altogether alien from God the Father, whereas, in our opinion, he is by nature God, and none other than God. But if the Son is severed from the essence of the Father, as far at least as pertains to his being in nature God, Surely we are correct in inferring that the son who sits at the father's right hand is placed in the same rank with the created world, and reckoned among the results of God's workmanship, and regarded in the light of a mechanical instrument, and looked upon henceforth as a servant to ourselves rather than as a master, or indeed that he is in strict truth not actually a son at all. For it never could one regard or accept in the light of a son a being who is placed in the rank of a mere instrument. The father, it would appear, has begotten an instrument to show forth his wisdom and skill, and is deemed to have generated something quite different from that which he is himself. How could this possibly happen? Surely it is the height of folly to conceive such a notion. If, therefore, thou refusest to surrender that opinion concerning the Son, which regards him as an instrument or a servant, and if thou art unwilling to acknowledge him as at all in truth a Son, and deniest his ineffable generation from the essence of God the Father, thou wilt be doing injustice to the glory even of the Father himself, for then the Father will cease to be Father in veritable reality for how could one who had not begotten a son of his own essence be at all in his nature a father? It would follow that the Holy Trinity is altogether falsely named, if neither the father is truly father, nor the son in his nature son, and the logical sequence to this view will be blasphemy against the Holy Ghost as well. It would therefore follow in this case that we have been grossly deceived. Our faith is a falsehood. The Holy Scripture is coining a lie when it calls God by the name of the Father. And if the Son is not in his nature God, as having been begotten of God the Father, we have been led astray, and together with us the citizens of the world above have erred also even the undefiled multitude of the holy angels when they join us in glorifying and adoring the son as one who is in his nature god being led on in some mysterious manner to sing the praise of one who if we speak after the manner of the heretics accursed folly is a god-bearing vessel the work of god's hands and if the father ever willed to withdraw from his relationship to the son and his indwelling in him, the son would then be in no respect different from others who have fallen away from their original sovereignty, with nothing to distinguish him, no trace within his nature of the father who begat him, but rather one like ourselves in all things, who had only been strengthened by the divine grace, and indeed honored with the title of sonship in the same degree as ourselves. Tell me, then, why does he not himself acknowledge his natural relationship to us? Why is it written, We perish forever, whereas thou abidest forever? And why are we servants, and he Lord? For even if we are called the sons of God, yet by acknowledging nonetheless our own proper nature, we do not disgrace the honor done to us, But tell me the reason why, if he is like unto us, and not at all superior to his creatures, inasmuch as he is not in nature God, for this is their ignorant opinion, he does not confess his community with us in being a servant. Rather, we find him investing himself with the honor and glory that peculiarly befit and are specially ascribed to the divine nature, and saying to the holy disciples, Ye call me Lord and Master, and ye say, Well, for so I am. This is the Saviour's saying, but our illustrious expositors, who introduce these doctrines attacking his divinity, accept his words and affirmation asserting that he was truly called Lord, and yet thrust him away from his natural lordship, because they are unwilling to confess him as in his nature God of God though they are not bold enough to bring against him the worst of all the charges that their accursed blasphemy implies. For he that wills not to be reckoned among those who hold the rank of servants, or even in the category of created objects, but rather that he ever looks to the freedom inherent in himself by nature, even at the time when he was made in the form of a servant, all this thou wilt learn in the following manner. He had arrived at Capernaum, as we read in the Gospels. The collectors of the legal tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay the half shekel?" And when Christ heard of this, it is right that we should notice the question he addressed to Peter. The kings of the earth, from whom do they receive toll or tribute, from their sons or from strangers? and after Peter had wisely and sensibly acknowledged that it was a stranger to the kingdom, as regards birth and kinship, as it is reckoned among us, who would be compelled to submit to ordinances and taxation? Christ forthwith brought forward his claim that a God-befitting nature was truly existent in himself by adding the words, Therefore the sons are free. Whereas, if he had been a fellow-servant, and not a son truly begotten of the essence of the Father, with no intimate natural relationship to the Father, why is it that, after implying that all besides are subject to the tribute, inasmuch as their nature is foreign to that of him who of right receives the tribute, and they are only in the rank of servants, he has claimed freedom for himself alone. For it is by an inaccurate use of terms that attributes, which mainly and truly are befitting to the Godhead alone, are ascribed to us, whereas in him they are in very truth inherent. And so if anyone were to investigate accurately the nature of things created, he would perceive that to that nature the title, as well as the fact of slavery, most appropriately belongs. Whereas, if any like ourselves have been decorated with the glorious name of freedom, an honor that is due to God alone is attributed to them only by an inexact use of language. End of chapter 1, part 1